Good morning. Like the others who have already been up here, it's a joy to me to welcome you in the name of Jesus. And this morning we come to the end of the book of Habakkuk, and what a book it's been, huh? What a book. What a book Habakkuk is, what a book God's Word is for us. And it's good to be in the minor prophets. I think the minor prophets can be neglected, overlooked, kind of viewed as irrelevant when they're talking about nations like Edom and Nineveh and these other things. But it's good for us to have the the language of the prophets in our mind. In fact, when, when the language of the prophets informs the way that we see the world that we live in, I think things click. Just consider what the words from these prophets remind you of. Lamentations 1.1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. Or what comes to your mind when you hear Jeremiah 7.34? And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. It's not just the Old Testament. Revelation 18, 22 and 23 says, And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. Doesn't that sound eerily similar to the scenes that we witnessed over the last year under shutdowns and, and lockdowns? Just scenes that we could have never imagined a year and a half ago, like New York City and L.A., And every major city in our country, just quiet, desolate, like a ghost town. Empty schools and restaurants and malls and offices and empty stadiums and arenas and empty theaters and everything just empty. I think modern American Christians, for the most part, survey I checked, at least three in four evangelical Christians understands, acknowledges, believes that there is going to be a final judgment at the end of history. I'm not sure about the other one in four, what book they're reading. But I think among American Christians, there tends to be very little awareness that God's wrath is also revealed in the world, in time, in history. Ever since the Enlightenment, Christians have been susceptible to a very deistic way of looking at the world and looking at history, one that assumes God has been ever since Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, ever since then. So about the last 2,000 years, God has basically been uninvolved in human affairs. That's a deistic way of thinking. He's, he's taken his hands off the wheel. We, we confuse describing the world with explaining why things are happening. Just because we can describe scientifically what's happening doesn't mean we are getting to the root of why things are happening. And, and we live in an age where we think we can explain everything. So if there are floods or droughts, well, we have meteorologists for that and ecologists, and they can explain what's going on with the climate. 
And if there's a recession, we have economists. And we have politicians who can spend us out of it. And if there are pandemics, we have virologists and immunologists and we have Fauci. Whatever it is, God has nothing to do with it. God has nothing to do with it. And certainly, don't you dare suggest that he might possibly be judging anyone. I think that's kind of the general attitude. And some have, I think humorously, called this nothing buttery. The nothing buttery fallacy. The fallacy of explaining the world as nothing but. The world is nothing but molecules in motion. That's all that's happening here. Just weather patterns and just the the laws of physics and that's all that's happening. It's nothing but that. But I think describing pandemics and natural disasters and economic collapses as nothing but what science can tell us is as foolish as looking at the person next to you and saying, you are nothing but carbon and protoplasm. And that's what you're made out of, but that's not what you are. There's a lot more to you than that. Remember Romans 1? Next week, we're going back to Romans. Romans 1 helps us guard against this thought that God's judgment is this freak fireball that falls out of a blue sky and can't be explained by science. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Romans 1.26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Romans 1.28, God gave them up to a debased mind. So when you become familiar with the language of Scripture and, and the covenantal way that God deals with nations in history, then you're able to recognize the signs, the evidence that God is giving a nation up to its collective lusts and passions. And there are two key passages in the Old Testament that unlock for you all of the prophets all the way through the book of Revelation. If you want to understand what is all this imagery and what is all this language that they're using, Two texts you have to be familiar with, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the two passages where the blessings and the curses of the covenant are spelled out in incredible detail. And that's where you get all of the language that all the prophets use. Because when the prophets come along, they're just pointing back to the covenant saying, remember that agreement that God entered into with you, Israel, people that he redeemed for himself? Remember that covenant? Remember the blessings he promised? Remember the curses he warned you about? Here's what's coming. Just listen to this excerpt from Deuteronomy 28, 20 and 22. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence Stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. So whether it's disease or the confusion that results from the response to the disease this language should be familiar to us in Scripture. And I know the, the, the common response to that is something like, but that's just Old Testament Israel, right? That was a long time ago. That was a totally different nation. We're not Old Testament Israel. 
We can't look at things happening in the world today and detect whether or not God might be judging a people. But think about this. Who were the blessings of the covenant for? What did God say to Abram when he blessed him? Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The blessings given to Abram and then to his descendants, the people of Israel, were meant to be blessings for all the nations of the earth, that all people on earth would live in relationship to God the way Abram did. That is, by trusting him. And by trusting him would enjoy all the blessings of having God as their God. This was meant to be for all the peoples of the earth. And when God gave Israel his law prior to bringing them into the promised land, listen to this warning in Leviticus 18. 18.26. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. He's looking at the people who lived in the land where they were going in to possess. Do none of the things that they do, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for the people of the land who were before you, they did all these abominations. And what happened? Did they get to say, well, we're not God's covenant people. We're not Israel. God's law does not apply to us. None of those curses will fall on us. No, they did these things, and the land became unclean. Here's the warning to Israel. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Sin has a polluting effect on the land. In fact, sin is a much, much more serious ecological threat than plastic straws are. Sin is the most serious pollutant on earth, and it pollutes the land, not just in Israel, if Old Testament Israel is living there, but wherever humans live on God's green earth. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that at least 10 of the Old Testament prophets gave oracles of judgment warning foreign nations of what would come on them unless they turned from their sin. So we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Zechariah all prophesying against Babylon and Nineveh and Assyria and Egypt and Ethiopia. And none of those nations get to say, hey, whoa, we're not. That's just you guys. God's covenant people. That doesn't apply to us. No, th this is the God of the whole world. And all people will give an account to him. And I think there's a, another thought that, that, that goes something like, but, but God would never let us, a little old us, God would never let us live through any kind of judgment, would he? he? He would never let us see any hard times. Have you seen that bumper sticker that says, don't blame me, I voted for the other guy? I mean, it's funny, but it's not how things work, is it? That may be true. Maybe you did vote for the other guy. But God deals with nations as nations. And if you play sports, you, you get this. If, if one player on your team commits a foul, the penalty is enforced against your team, right? You're not like, it was just that guy. Can't you just penalize him in a way that doesn't affect the rest of us? No, it, it's enforced against the whole team. And if you're part of a family and we all come from families, then, then you know how this works on a small scale. If they're, to paraphrase one writer, if 
if four members in your family want Olive Garden for dinner and one person's holding out for Texas Roadhouse, it's pasta. That's the way it's going to be. And one of the reasons that the prophet Habakkuk is such a gift to the church is that what we find here is, is an example of someone who trusted God, someone who was justified by faith. He was right with God. He was not partaking in all of the sin and the wickedness going on in Jerusalem around him. But he did live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation that was about to experience God's judgment. So that means Habakkuk can help us. If we look around the world that surrounds us and we, we see the sin and we see the, the chaos and the, the craziness around us and we think, God, what is going to come of this? And, and what about us? We, we trust you and, and we've been forgiven. Our sins are forgiven so we know your, your wrath is no longer on us. What's going to become of us? Habakkuk helps us. Scripture does have a category for innocent suffering that's not judgment for God. To be clear, the, the book of Job is a huge example of that. Or Psalm 44 is a lament, and verse 17 cries out, All this has come upon us, even though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. But, I just watched a, a video of a, a prominent author, theologian, the other day, talking about the pandemic saying, we, we, just, we just don't know, can't know if that's God's judgment at all. And I, I don't find myself agreeing with him. When I, when I read Psalm 44, 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. Can, can our country say that? We have aborted 62 million babies since 1973. Can we, can we stand before God and say, what have we done? Americans spend billions, billions with a B, on pornography annually, and nobody knows quite how big the industry is. The smallest estimate is like $6 billion a year. Medium is like $15 billion a year, which is getting up there like bigger than the NFL. Some estimates are as high as $90 billion. We just have no idea. We just know it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So-called same-sex marriage has been endorsed by the highest court in our land for six years now, next month. In 2019, the U.S. Human Trafficking Hotline reported 22,000 victims and survivors of human trafficking in America in one year. And that's not even talking about Hollywood, Wall Street corruption, D.C. corruption, I mean, as a nation, can we stand before God and say, what, what have we done? No. And even if we could, the right response is always to turn to God in humility and seek Him. So when you look at our world today, what, what, what do you think? What do you feel? I think all kinds of attitudes of unbelief are possible in response to the the conditions we find ourselves in. I, I think it's possible for some to just be overcome with fear and anxiety. And you, you worry. You worry not just for yourself, but you worry for your children and for your grandchildren. And what kind of world are they going to grow up in? Maybe you're not afraid at all, but you just find yourself kind of uncertain, just confused, overwhelmed. 
seeing that things might get even harder than they are, and, and what is that going to call for, and am I going to have what it takes in, in that moment? Or, or you might just find yourself frequently doom-scrolling through headlines, feeling frustration and anger and bitterness toward all these other people messing up the world. You might feel some smug pride and arrogance. At least I'm not like all those crazy people. God, thank you that I'm not like them. Or you might wallow in hopelessness and despair. Or, or maybe you're just totally carefree, like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Things are great in my corner of the world. Minding your own business, thinking, I didn't vote for that guy, so I'll be fine. <laughs> Nothing that happens in the world is going to affect me and my portfolio. God, the living God, who speaks to us through his word, has a word for us today where we live in Habakkuk 3.16 through 19. So I want to invite you to stand with me out of regard for God's word if you're able to do so. Follow along as I read. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. In the God of my salvation, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given your church in all times your eternal, unchanging word through which we might know you rightly and we might understand the world we live in, which you made and you gave your son to save so that we might stand before you, every mouth stopped, held accountable to you and offered hope, unspeakable hope grace and goodness and steadfast love for us in you and your promises and ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus. We want, to, we want to know you through your word. Help us now to hear and believe and obey in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so when Habakkuk says in verse 17... Though the fig tree should not blossom. That word though is, is not a, a hypothetical. He's not saying even if hypothetically speaking these things happen. He's prophetically describing the calamity that is in fact going to happen guaranteed in Jerusalem. Habakkuk lived in Jerusalem when they had passed the point of no return. God had sent mercifully prophet after prophet after prophet. They killed many of them. They did not respond to God's warnings. Judgment is now coming, and judgment is what Habakkuk is talking about in verse 17. He's, he's talking in terms of what we might describe as 
economic collapse. He's talking about fields and flocks and cattle, which represent just life's necessities, bread, milk, meat, none of that. It's all gone. Fig tree, vines, olives, that signifies life's pleasures and and luxuries like wine and, and oil. But Habakkuk is not looking at the economy like a deist, as though all of this is just simply what the market happens to be doing. No, this is the judgment of God that's coming. And we know it's judgment because the language he's using clearly echoes the language of the blessings and curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13, when Israel's about to go into the promised land, Moses is preparing them, and Moses says to Israel, because you listen to these rules and you keep them and you do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. What, what does that remind you of? Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And that is repeated throughout the storyline of Scripture. And Moses is saying, he loves you. He's going to bless you. He's going to multiply you. He will also bless, listen to his language, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. So any Jew who heard Habakkuk 3.17 knew exactly what he was talking about. The blessings of God are over for this generation. Deuteronomy 28 outlines the curses of covenant unfaithfulness. Verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Any Jew who heard Habakkuk 3.17 knew exactly what he was describing. This is not just a time of bad luck. This is not just a bear market, we'll get through it. This is God's judgment, covenantal curses, God's sanctions against a people who persistently rejected him as God and rebelled against his word. And that means that the book of Habakkuk is not just a book for hard times. It's a book for the worst time, the worst possible time you could ever live through. Just think about it. Which is worse, to be under God's wrath or not to be under God's wrath? How could you get any lower than to be under God's wrath and justice revealed in the world around you? But... That's why Habakkuk is a book of hope, because if Habakkuk learned to rejoice in God while he personally lived through this time of judgment that was coming corporately on Judah, then the message of Habakkuk absolutely applies to you when you face any hardship, any other kind of suffering, any other kind of loss in your life. If this could be true when God's judgment is on a people, then this is true at any time. This passage is a gift from God, and it's perfectly suited to sustain your hope and your joy in God through the absolute worst and anything else. When God's wrath is revealed and his displeasure is manifested, how should the righteous by faith respond? What should we conclude? That God doesn't love us, that his promises are over, that hope is lost? No, when all earthly pleasure fails, 
those who live by faith know they still have God himself. We still have God himself. And by faith they know God himself is the source of all our good. That's Habakkuk's conclusion. He states it in two clauses tied together by this powerful little word, yet. Which is, this week, my favorite word. Because of what it represents for the kind of faith God seeks to establish in his people. Yet, fruit and flock will fail. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Fruit and flock will fail. There will be days of poverty and lack and hunger and shortage. And yes, it's God's judgment. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. That is a shocking, counterintuitive response to the circumstances the prophet found himself in. Habakkuk is praying. No, this is to the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk is singing, God is going to judge us, and I am going to rejoice in God. How can that be? What on earth could produce that response? It's certainly not the result of willpower or positive thinking. It's not from flesh and blood. When when flesh and blood... Human sin goes through hard things. We we grumble, we complain, we stand up for ourselves, we get angry at everybody else who's making our lives miserable. This is the result of the developmental process we've seen throughout this book that began with the prophet looking at God through the lens of his circumstances. He started with my life, looking at God through that, saying, God, you don't make sense to me. And he ends looking at his circumstances through the lens of the glory of God. And everything looks different. That change in Habakkuk, from fear to faith, from lamenting to rejoicing, that is the result of one thing and one thing only. Beholding God. Beholding God. Knowing God. In verses 3 through 15 in this chapter, the prophet just rehearsed in song who God is, what God does, how he works, how he has worked in history, revealed, clearest picture Habakkuk knew was the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And he is is deeply affected. Look at verse 16. "I, I hear, he says as he gets done rehearsing, recounting what God has done, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound and and rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. He can barely stand up. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He is overwhelmed and undone. And we see in Scripture from men like Job to Daniel to Ezekiel to John in the book of Revelation that trembling and collapsing and falling down as though I were dead are pretty common responses when mortal men apprehend the glory of God. The common response we think, wouldn't it be cool if we could just see something more, more visible, tangible, experience God's glory like that? Everywhere I see in Scripture, somebody had an encounter with God, some theophany, they, they are collapsing like they're dead. Can't even stand. Habakkuk is affected by rehearsing the truth about God. 
God himself is all he needed when flock and field would fail. God himself is all you need in hard times. Habakkuk's conclusion is this. I can always rejoice. I will always rejoice because God will never fail. I will always rejoice because God will never fail. That, that, that's the relationship here. Where, where does that kind of rejoicing come from? It comes from knowing the God who will never fail. The fig tree might not blossom. The vines might not produce any grapes. The olive tree might shrivel and it may die, but God will never fail. Fields, flocks, herds, they all might be cut off. God will not fail. And that's why Habakkuk can say, that's why you can say this morning, yet, yet I will rejoice. Even in judgment, even in judgment, God, Habakkuk is telling you, God himself is an unfailing source of satisfaction and security to everyone who knows him and trusts him. That's what God is for you. That's what he is for me. Even as God reveals his wrath against the wicked and the unfaithful, God never once ceases to be the all-sufficient source of joy and salvation and strength to those who trust him and have to live through those hard times. He never ceases to be that for his people. Habakkuk knows God as an inexhaustible source of joy, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. All of these other things that Habakkuk knows are going to be cut off, all these other pleasant blessings that God gives to people to enjoy in life, they are all gifts from God, and gifts always point us to the source, to the giver of good gifts. God himself is the source of the joy that we experience when we enjoy the gifts that God gives. And that's why those who know God can say things like, the psalmist in Psalm 16, 2, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Outside of you, I don't possess anything good, anything enjoyable, anything pleasurable. Or Psalm 34, 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. So, so put those two things together. In you, I lack nothing. Without you, I have nothing. That's the conviction of all those who know the living triune God of Scripture. In you I lack nothing. Apart from you I have nothing. C.S. Lewis put it well. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. That's how Habakkuk could say, Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. What's his source of joy? Not the fields, not the flocks. All that's going to be gone. He still has God. That's his hope. And that's why he can rejoice. To, to rejoice, to take joy in God, it's more than just having pleasant thoughts about God. Both of the words here, the Hebrew words translated rejoice, take joy, they, they both imply an expression of exuberant joy, like, like a victory celebration that would include spontaneous shouts and loud cries, like when your team wins the big game and, and you just can't hold back. You, you don't need anybody to coach you and tell you what to do. You just celebrate. That's the kind of celebration. This is not, not like Habakkuk saying, well, I guess I'll just grin and put a smile on each day and 
do my best. No, he's saying, through whatever's coming, I'm going to be exuberant in this God because he is my God. And he is all I have. Habakkuk knows God is an inexhaustible source of salvation. Verse 18, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This personalizes the, the incredible truth, the glorious truth of the centerpiece of Habakkuk's song. He just sang in verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That's good. That's great. That, that's the people collectively here. Personally, he's saying, he is the God of my salvation. That's what I'm trusting. That's what saving faith is. It says, this is how God has revealed himself, and I'm grabbing onto that, and I'm saying, that's who he is for me. His promises that he makes, that he delivers in his word, I'm clinging to those, and I'm convinced those are for me. He is the God of my salvation. The word salvation here means help, deliverance. It's used throughout the Psalms when somebody's in a, a tough situation, asking God to act, to intervene, to deliver them, to get them out of it. And though Habakkuk did not expect to escape all suffering and hardship, he did trust that judgment was not the last word. And that's the pattern in Scripture. It's always the pattern in Scripture. God may judge to put an end to wickedness in a time, but he always does it to purify and to preserve his church. First Peter says, judgment begins at the household of God, which is a sobering reality. Judgment begins at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for the ungodly and the sinner? Second Peter says God knows how to rescue the godly from trials while simultaneously keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how to del deliver and help the righteous through hard things. Habakkuk knew God as the source of his salvation. In verse 19, he knew God as the source of his strength. God, the Lord, is my strength. What does that mean to say God is my, my strength? If you have strength, you have ability, you have power to do things. If you have physical strength, you can lift things up and put them down. You can run faster. You can climb things. You can maybe compete better. You, you have ability to do something. And Habakkuk knows God as a real source of strength. But strength to do what? Not to lift heavy objects. It's not like God is my strength. I can lift any rock. This is what Paul spoke of in Philippians 4, 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. It takes grace to do both, right? Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so then athletes just take that last sentence. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean Christians can run faster or lift more than non-Christians. It does mean God himself supplies the ability to endure with joy and contentment anything, everything, in any and every circumstance. And, and when you know God as your source of joy, your source of salvation, your source of strength, that has an effect on you. It, it produces peace. Habakkuk sings in verse 16, 
yet I will quietly wait. What a, what a difference from chapter 1 when he's lamenting to God all of his complaints. And here he finally says, I'm just going to be quiet and wait. He's at peace. That's emotional maturity. Do, do you know how to lead your troubled soul when, when anxiety is just bubbling up and you know it's bubbling over because now it's coming out in your expressions and your vocalizations to everybody around you and everybody knows that you're anxious? Do, do you know how to calm and quiet your spirit by looking to God? When you know God as the source of your joy and your strength and your salvation, then you have this confidence that no matter what he's doing in the world, he's always blessing you, which, which is, it seems weird to us. How, how could that be? I mean, if the stock market collapses, how could God be blessing me in that, especially if it wasn't my sin personally that's the fault at fault here? Look at verse 19. Habakkuk says, he makes my feet like the deer's, he makes me tread on my high places. That's almost verbatim what David says in Psalm 18, a psalm of deliverance. To tread on the heights implies God exalting, God lifting up, God prospering, God blessing someone with victory and triumph. You have ascended to the top of the mountain. Habakkuk just said, it's all over. Everything pleasant is gone And he sets me up on the heights. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, where Moses describes how God had blessed Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. He, God, made him, that is Jacob, ride on the high places of the land. There it is. He he lifted him up to the heights. And listen to the rest of the language. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, milk from the flock, fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. All that's gone and Habakkuk still saying, he sets my feet on the heights. He's blessing me in all of this. That's incredible. Habakkuk knew all the material blessings could be cut off Nothing could separate him from the never-stopping, unbreaking, always, forever love of God. And he had the hope that he would live, live forever. I think all of Habakkuk's hope here implies the hope of resurrection. It's all over the Old Testament. Habakkuk 2.4, kind of the linchpin of the whole book, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith, which is the theme of the book of Romans, which we're going back to. The only way to understand Habakkuk's hope is that he really expected to live. Babylonians are coming. They are brutal. They're going to murder people. They're going to carry people off into exile. But the righteous live, God. We live and we don't die. How, How could he have that assurance they had promises. The psalmist's hope in Psalm 115, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. That's the expectation of God's people. Dead people don't praise him. We aren't going to die. He will give us life forever. Psalm 27, 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Unbelief says, If I live, kind of foxhole faith, if you get me through this, if you spare me, if I live, then I'll trust you. Habakkuk, with faith, says, I trust you. Because I trust you, I'll live. 
and I'll enjoy you forever. And all of this, all of this is grace. Only grace could produce this in any of us. Think, think about this. What Habakkuk describes here, cutting off of flocks and herds and fruit from the vine, that also means that there, there was nothing available for any sacrifices in the temple. Nothing for food offerings, drink offerings, animal sacrifices. So if a people's under God's judgment and they don't have anything to come back to God the way he's prescribed, offering sacrifices, what hope is there? And yet Habakkuk rejoices. Like Abraham said to Isaac on Mount Moriah when Isaac asked him where the lamb for the burnt offering would come from, God, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide, and he has, he has provided his spotless son for us, Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us and bore all the curses of covenant unfaithfulness, though he never once was unfaithful to the covenant. He and he alone is our joy and our salvation and our strength now and forever. And he alone is the hope of this city, this state, this nation, any nation on earth. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Any people who turns to him, repents of their sin, cries out to him, God is merciful. And we need this Savior. And Jesus is for us as great as Habakkuk is. What a book. Jesus is a better example than Habakkuk for two reasons that come to my mind. Habakkuk was righteous by faith and kind of a bystander in a wicked country, and he lived through hard times. Jesus was not a bystander. He became the object of God's wrath. All of the curses poured out on him. He's a better example to us than Habakkuk. And, and unlike Habakkuk, who ends here before the hard times have started, it's great to hear him say, I intend to rejoice in the Lord through it all. And then the book ends. Jesus, we know, was faithful through death, and he proved that Habakkuk's hope is not a vain hope. God the Father raised him from the dead brought him back to life, exalted him as the ruler of the world, and assures us all we will live with him forever and look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So trust in him with this kind of even so faith. Nevertheless, I will rejoice. Yet I will rejoice and resolve now. The time to settle this in your heart is now. And the time to practice rejoicing in the Lord is now. Look to Jesus today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Are you trusting in Jesus? In Jesus Christ alone for your joy, for your security, for your salvation, for your strength. He is a great Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, you are able to save to the uttermost absolutely and completely, now and forever, everyone who comes to the Father through you. You save completely. Every sin forgiven. All guilt, all shame atoned by your blood. All wrath removed. Thank you that already 
we need not fear the Father's wrath because you took it all. What a Savior you are. We are trusting in you. And would you help us to know you with such conviction and joy and pleasure and confidence that, that it would just be the most natural thing in the world for us to talk about you to others around us who don't know you with confidence and boldness to hold out to this world, Jesus, the great Savior of our souls. And would you have mercy on our land and turn people to you in repentance and faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.